I were to ask you this morning if you had ever been caught in the middle of or been witness to a church dispute, I'm sure that uh, many of you in here would be able to tell of some stories of some legitimate disagreements that you had either witnessed or been caught in the middle of in the church over the years. And I'm also sure that there are some of you in here who have stories of disagreements that, that you have seen take place in the church that are so petty they're hardly believable. Well, a few weeks ago I got online and I had a good time <clears throat> um, reading a few of these stories. And uh, though those telling the story promised that the events happened the way they explained them, I, I don't have any... Uh, evidence to prove that they did so I'm gonna read them to you and I'm gonna let you be the judge okay of, of whether or not you want to believe these stories the first story is of two churches about a mile from one another that split back 40 years ago over fried chicken believe it or not that's what the person said fried chicken apparently there were two ladies in the church who didn't care for one another very much and uh, they were having a church fellowship, and both of these ladies brought fried chicken. Well, no one gave the pastor the heads up, which, by the way, you should do for your pastor. <clears throat> and uh, he stopped at one end of the table and took a piece of chicken and ate it and then went on and on about how it was the best chicken he had ever eaten. Well, that didn't go over well. And the church allegedly split shortly after this happened. Now, once again, I, I don't know if it really happened exactly this way, but, but you want to think, hopefully there's something more going on here than fried chicken, all right? Hopefully so. Here's another story. In the 1890s, there was a small Baptist church in Mayfield County, Kentucky. The church had two deacons who just constantly seemed to be at odds with one another. Well, one Sunday, one of the deacons went and put a peg up on the back of the church wall so that the pastor could hang up his hat. Well, when the other deacon found out, he was infuriated. How dare someone put a peg on the back wall without consulting him first? Well, the church, they took sides, and eventually the church split. And over 100 years later, the residents of Mayfield County supposedly still refer to the two churches as Peg Baptist and Anti-Peg Baptist Church. It's amazing, isn't it? Here's, a, here's another story I read. In the late 90s, Holy Creek Baptist Church, not sure where it's located, but uh, this church was split into multiple factions and the source of dissension, a piano bench which sat behind a 1923 Steinway piano to the left of the pulpit. Members and friends at Holy Creek Baptist Church say that old bench was always a source of hostility. People should have seen this coming. Wow. Those are pretty petty, right? Well, whether each of these stories are true or not, what is unfortunate is that these stories are not as unbelievable as they sound, are they? Many of us, many of you, we've heard stories or maybe even witnessed a church split over issues equally as petty. 
Something else I want you to notice here about each of these stories is how the people respond. Instead of rushing to the church's aid, like we talked about last week, what they do is they, they take sides and they split the church. Now, this is a bit more believable, isn't it? Though some of these stories might be fictional, one thing that is realistic is this element. I mean, nine times out of ten, people, unfortunately, they respond in this way. When there is conflict, those within the church, they don't come to make peace. They come and they take sides, which brings about a greater division and disunity. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17 this morning. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians entitled Paul's Message to a Messy Church. And for the past two weeks, we've been talking about the fact that the uh, church in Corinth had issues, right? They did. They had problems. And last week, we, I even mentioned to you that they were a, a train wreck of a congregation. But remember what I said last week in verses 1 through 9. Remember what Paul did. Instead of cutting out on this church altogether, what does he do? He comes to their aid. He does not quit on the church. And the reason why is because God had called him to this church. And another reason why is because, is because he believed this body of believers, the church in Corinth, was God's church. These people were people whom God had called out and had set apart for himself and had gifted for his purposes. And of all the issues that the church in Corinth had, incest, drunkenness, idol worship, the first issue Paul chooses to address is disunity. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, man, I, I probably would have addressed those members of the church visiting prostitutes first or those getting drunk at church fellowships. But, but Paul doesn't do that. We would have saved disunity for another day. But Paul begins by talking about dis, disunity. Why does he do that? Because Paul knew for the believers in Corinth, to be the type of church that God had called them to be, they have to first become a unified group of believers. Unity is so important. It is. Without it, churches are often rendered ineffective and eventually they're ripped apart. And Paul knew that the church in Corinth was in danger of this very thing. So he begins with unity. Because he knew that if the church in Corinth, that they begin to value unity, if they would seek it out, if they would seek to be unified, if they would seek to be on the same page spiritually, they'd be well on their way to becoming the church that God had called them to be. And listen, the same is true of us. It is. God wants his church, this church, to be a church that is unified. And the reason why is because he wants us as a unified group of believers to go out and make an impact in this world for him. This morning, Paul is going to show us how to do just that. 
he wants, he, he's going to show us that from this passage of Scripture, the proper steps to take to be a unified group of believers. Here's the first principle, number one. Don't be divided by personal disagreements. Be unified as a family. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Notice here the motivation Paul gives for the believers in Corinth to be unified. He appeals to the fact that they are equal members of God's family. He calls them brothers. Now this is not by accident. Like I told you earlier, remember they were, they were fighting. They were opposed to one another. As I said in the, in the introduction, this was a church that was filled with divisions and schisms. And Paul sends word to them and he says, hey, <clears throat> you guys shouldn't be divided like you are. You're family. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. Parents, you ever do this with your kids? I do at times. Times Ava will knock Edie down or Edie will yell at her sister. That's all she can do right now. She's a little, little squirt. But I'll come to them and I'll say, Ava, you shouldn't knock Edie down. Edie, you shouldn't, you shouldn't scream and yell hateful things at Ava because you're sisters. You have a unique and, and close bond that not everybody has. You should love one another and value one another and care for one another even when you disagree because you're sisters. That's what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. He's saying, hey, you guys are brothers. He says, I appeal to you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice, he doesn't say my Lord. He says, our Lord. He reminds the Corinthians here. Because of your faith in Christ, you have a special bond with one another that not everybody has. You've been brought together as God's family. You are equal members of His family. You are His children. Therefore, Paul makes the point, you should act the way God intends members of His family to act. That's what our Father wants from us. He does. He wants us to learn to live together as believers, to live with our differences as brothers and sisters in Christ. When we have issues with one another, God doesn't want us to just pridefully stand our ground to the point of splitting His church, and He also doesn't want us to cut and run. He wants us to live together as family differences and all agreeing disagreeing agreeably if necessary number two don't mistake inactivity for unity work to be united in mind and judgment to be unified we need to first realize what unity looks like don't we when defining spiritual unity, most define it as, hey, just not being at odds with one another. 
kind of just laissez-faire, hands off, I'm, you know. And they think just standing back and not doing anything is what it means to be unified, not being a troublemaker. Paul shows us in the second half of verse 10, though, that unity takes work. It does. Look at what he says. That you be united in, in the same mind and the same judgment. Here Paul shows the Christians at Corinth what true spiritual unity is. He says it's being united in mind and in judgment. Now what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that we need to see eye to eye on everything? Is he saying that we just need to be carbon copies of one another? No. You can breathe a sigh of relief, right? Let's be honest, that's impossible, right? Because at times, we don't even see eye to eye with ourselves, do we? I mean, think about it. We can think one way about something one day, think the exact opposite a year, a month, a week, or even a day later. I mean, at at times, we're not even on the same page with ourselves. It's true. Much less with one another. So what is Paul getting at here? One point he's making is this. As as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to value the thoughts and opinions of others and work to understand. We need to have an attitude that says this. You know what? I may not agree with you, but I'm going to try my hardest to get on the same page with you. I'm going to try my hardest to value your opinion and see where you're coming from. Let me give you a guarantee here. If you do this, even when you disagree with somebody, it's going to go over a lot better than if you simply blow them off, right? And that makes sense. Have you ever had someone just dismiss your opinion? It's kind of hard to be civil with a person when they do that, isn't it? Oftentimes, conflict is is not caused by the disagreement itself, but with the way one goes about disagreeing with someone. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. So being of the same mind, it carries with it the idea of getting on the same page with one another, disagreeing agreeably if necessary. But more than that, what being of the same mind tells us is that we're not to just be unified for unity's sake. We're to be unified around something. Being of the same mind, it can be literally translated to say the same things basically what Paul's saying there. Once again, he's not telling us you have to be a carbon copy of each other and think the exact same way, but he's, he's calling here for the church at Corinth to be unified around a common doctrine. He's saying, say the same things when it comes to what you believe about God in the Christian faith. You need to share common doctrine. You need to be unified in your theology. Now, why does Paul see this as important? Let's be honest, many don't, right? They think theology's for the birds, it's just optional. Why does does Paul say this is important? It's because having a good theology, thinking rightly about God and the Christian faith is the primary ingredient for unity. It is. 
I know I've said this a hundred times in the past, and I'm sure I'll say it a thousand times more, but it's so important, and I want you to get this. The study of theology, what we believe about God and about the Christian faith is so important, and the reason why is because the way we think directly influences the way we live and what we do. If you don't think rightly about God, you're going to be disunified. If you don't think rightly about God, you are not going to live a life that is honoring to Him. But on the flip side of that, if you, if you have a good theology, if you think rightly about God, it will, it will play out in the way you live. It should. So it's very important. A.W. Tozer once said this. He said, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. And the reason why. Again, because if we think rightly about God, we will in turn live rightly for Him. If we're going to be the church God wants us to be, we have to get serious about this. We have to get serious about what we believe. We need to, to make efforts to get on the same page when it comes to what we believe as Christians. That's why in, in our first equipping class, I started us off. The first one that, that I led, I wanted to, to, to discuss what we believe as Christians because I know that's vitally important and, and the health of our church depends on it, that we're on the same page spiritually. So unity, it takes work, doesn't it? It does. Let me ask you this morning. Are you willing to put forth the effort needed so that this church can be unified? So that this church can be more of what God has called it to be? Are you willing to put in the work to understand where someone's coming from and get on the same page with them and value their opinion even when you disagree? Are you willing to commit yourself to love and care for others the way that Christ is committed to love and care for you? Are you willing to take what you believe seriously and put in the work to know what we believe as Christians and 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 grow in your knowledge of God and of the Christian faith so that we can be a unified body of believers. I want you to examine your life this morning. Whoa, knock my glasses off. I want you to examine your life this morning, not simply by what you're not doing, but by what you are doing. Are you putting forth this kind of effort for unity? Number three, don't ignore issues in the church. Be bold for the sake of unity. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, we don't know much more about Chloe and her people than what we have right here. Let's be honest. There are many characters in Scripture mentioned only once or twice, and, and that's about it, right? And there are some that are mentioned only once or, or maybe twice for significant reasons. Uh, several years back, we had a book written about one of these characters, right? I remember Jabez? Yeah. Some of y'all hadn't even read the book, but you know he's popular because of a prayer, right? 
And uh, that's that, so. So there are minor characters in Scripture that are mentioned for significant reasons, and that's the case with with Chloe and her people. They're only mentioned once here, but it's significant, and here's why: they are the ones who appealed to Paul to let him know about the disunity within the church. They're the ones that talked to Paul and said, Paul, it's a mess in Corinth. Now, we don't know if it's Chloe and her people or just her people. I, I tend to think it's, it's both here from the wording. But what you need to know is they're the ones who let Paul know things are bad in Corinth. They brought the matter to the right person for the right Reason They were concerned about the issues in Corinth. And they go to Paul in hopes that this problem can be sorted out. Chloe and her people rightly saw disunity for what it truly was. Many just ignore it, right? They didn't. They truly saw it for what it truly was. A threat to the church and, and something that can tear the church apart. Believers, when there is disunity in the church, we need to recognize it for what it truly is. Not just sweep it under the rug, but recognize it for what it truly is. Something that is toxic. Something that is, is poisonous. Something that can divide and destroy God's church. It's a serious matter. That's the reason why Paul mentions it in every book he writes. This unity is so important. When you see the church being divided over an issue, let me ask you, will you, like Chloe and her people, take a stand for unity? Will you be willing to say, when issues threaten to divide the church, will you be willing to say, I'm going to make this matter known to the right people for the right reasons? When, when conflict inevitably comes, Will you not ignore this? Will you not ignore it, but will you instead be bold for the sake of unity? Pray that you will. Number four. Don't be divided in who you follow. Be unified in Christ. Look at verse 12 through 17. Paul says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. He's talking about the Apostle Peter there. Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here Paul gets to the issue. That's causing division. Like I said in the introduction, Corinth was like the New York City of the first century. It was. It was extremely affluent. 
It was a place that was filled with successful people who were hungry for more success, a, a, a place filled with wealthy people who had a desire for more wealth. And people would come from all around to, to Corinth to make a name for themselves. And one way they did this, one way they made a name for themselves is by attaching themselves to a person of influence. Well, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this worldly influence in this godless city had spilled over into this church. And it was influencing the goings-on in the church. And in verses 12 through 16, Paul mentions here that the church is, is following the pattern of those in the city of Corinth in that they are attaching themselves to godly leaders in the church for the, for the purpose of, of making a name for themselves. They were elevating godly leaders in an ungodly way. Now, we don't know the specific reasons why they were attaching themselves to these particular individuals, but we can make a guess, an educated guess as to why. The followers of Paul were probably associated with Paul because he had planted the church, for one. And, and these could have even been uh, charter members of the church. You ever, met a, you ever meet a charter member? Have you ever met a charter member of a church? Some of them are proud about it, you know? I remember when this church was started. I remember the, the first pastor that started this church, and it's never been the same since. Ever met anybody like that? By the way, I do know the person who started this church, and he's a great guy. You can let him know I said so. All right? Let him know I said that. Second group uh, were probably drawn to Apollos because of his speaking ability. We're told in the scriptures that, that, that Apollos was a great orator. He was a great speaker. And in that day, sophisticated crowds in Corinth, they, they were drawn to someone and they attached themselves to those who could move an audience and speech. And, and once again, we see that in our world today, don't we? We do. If you're a good communicator, you can get far in this country, can't you? You really can. And we see this in Christian circles as well. At times, people are, are drawn to pastors because of their speaking ability. And at times, they even overlook the content of what's being preached because they're caught up in the giftedness of the speaker. Now, in the third group, we don't really know what their agenda was. Uh, they were followers of Peter, and, and we don't have any... History doesn't tell us whether or not Peter went to uh, Corinth at all, if he ever visited there. But, but this might have been like a Jewish group that was within the church, and it may have just been that they wanted to attach themselves to one of the original 12 and one of the inner three to Jesus. But... Once again, we don't know for sure why they did that, but they thought that aligning themselves with Peter was going to hold some weight in the church. Now, I want you to understand something. It's not a bad thing to look to good godly leaders who are faithfully preaching and teaching the Word of God and who are faithfully serving God in His church. And, and it's even appropriate to, to look to them as an example and a role model. In fact, that's scriptural. In Hebrews 13, 7, we're told, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So it's biblical to look up to 
and model your life after good godly leaders. What's wrong is putting these leaders on such a pedestal that they're idolized in worship. That's wrong. And what's wrong is if your affiliation with them disrupts Christian fellowship. Now there's a fourth group that Paul mentions here. Those who claim to be followers of Jesus. They're on Jesus' team. Now when reading this, you probably thought, well, what's wrong with that? So am I. I'm on Jesus' team. The problem with this group is, though they claim to be followers of Christ, Paul points out they're just another divided group which is inconsistent with being closely associated with Christ. I believe Jesus is speaking here of those people who need no one but Jesus. You ever meet these types of people? The just give me Jesus crowd is what I call them. I don't need to read any books written by godly men. I just need Jesus. I don't need to associate with the church. Just need to associate with Jesus. I don't need any pastor or church leader speaking into my life. Just need Jesus to do that. This group may be one of the more arrogant of, of, of the four. And Paul asks a good rhetorical question here in this text. He says, is Christ divided? What he's showing here <clears throat> is that none of these groups have the Spirit of Christ because they're divided. If they were truly following, faithfully following Christ, they would be doing the opposite. And that's Paul's point. Listen, you may have read every book, John Calvin, John Wesley, John Piper have ever written. You may have heard every sermon preached by Billy Graham, Matt Chandler, uh, who else? David Platt, any of those guys. You may have your bookshelves filled with theology books that are marked up. But let me tell you this. If the words you speak constantly anger and divide God's people, you need to come to the realization that though you tie yourself to some good godly leaders and though you claim to be a follower of Christ, that kind of attitude is as counter to those guys and to Christ as you can be. It's important for us to realize, as followers of Christ, we're to be unified, not divided. Another issue that was causing division was concerning baptism. Now, not the doctrine of baptism, but over who baptized who. There was one group saying, we're significant because this person baptized us. And another group was saying, no, 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 we're significant because that person baptized I mean, they were, it was a mess, wasn't it? It was. Paul lets the air out of the tires of these proud name droppers by telling them who baptizes you, though it may be significant to you, it doesn't make you any more special in the eyes of God than anyone else. Notice what he says in verse 14 and 15 again. He says, I thank God <clears throat> that I baptized none of you except for a few so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. Basically, Paul's saying, I'm glad you can't use my name in this foolish way and carry around a false sense of significance because I was the one that baptized you. Now, was Paul saying baptism was not important? No. 
He knew it to be important, but he warned against it being used and viewed in the wrong way. And, and he also didn't make it a priority in his ministry to do it directly because Christ had sent Paul to do something of even greater significance, greater priority than baptizing new converts. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul makes the point here. Jesus did not call him to ministry to draw people to Paul, to draw people to himself through gifted speech and baptism. Christ had called Paul and was using Paul to draw men back into a right relationship with God and with one another through repentance and faith in Christ. So what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand here is that though the gospel is meant to set us apart from the world, it's meant to bring us together as believers. Let's be honest, we need Christ to do just that for us, don't we? We do. When it comes to loving and valuing others, when it comes to being united in mind and judgment with one another, when it comes to being passionate about being unified, these are characteristics that are lacking in us, aren't they? Let's just be honest. And they're lacking with others in our world. You know why? Because in the beginning, when Adam sinned against God, and God's relationship with man was broken. You know what other relationship was broken? Man's relationship with one another. It was, and we see that played out in Cain killing his brother Abel. I mean, that, that shows us our relationships are seriously wrong when you've got brother a brother killing another brother. We often fail to realize this, that there were two relationships that were damaged in the fall. God's relationship with man and man's relationship with one another. And of course, we see this every day, don't we? See brothers and sisters arguing, best friends fighting, husbands and wives divorcing, and we see the church splitting. Our relationships are in shambles. Well, what's the answer? It's a Sunday school answer, isn't it? It's Jesus. The answer to our relationships and, and, and getting our relationships back to where they need to be is, is Jesus. Believers, Christ came and left the perfect example for us of how to live humbly before God and how to live with one another. So what we need to do is we need to look to Christ and pattern our life after Him. Guess what else Jesus did? He not only left us a perfect example, but He provided us with a way to be unified. If we're to be on good terms with one another, it first starts by being on good terms with God. For us to repair the broken relationships that we have with one another, we must first have our relationship with God restored. 
And that's only possible through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Christ came to earth to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. To live a life of perfect obedience and then guess what he did? He became sin for us, like we sang about earlier. And he was punished in our place and in turn, he gives his righteousness to us. He makes us righteousness by our faith so that we can in turn be at peace with God. If you're here this morning, and are not trusting in Christ for your salvation. Maybe you came this morning and you're like, your, your relationship is a mess with others. I'm here to tell you, for you to get those things right, you need to first get the most important relationship right with God. And maybe you're here and you're, you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation and you're at odds with God. I urge you this morning to turn from your sins, trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior because only when you're at peace with God can you truly be at peace with one another. Let's pray.